This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So this morning we're going to continue on in our uh, series through 1 Thessalonians and we're getting very close to the end of the book. And today we're going to enter into uh, what is commonly called the final instructions uh, of the epistle. If you're familiar with epistles or letters, uh, the letters in the New Testament, the letters of that day and age, you know that in most epistles, at some point, uh, the author, uh, usually towards the end of the letter, begins to give instruction after instruction after instruction, exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And we're entering into that section of 1 Thessalonians uh, this morning. Paul, in the next 11 verses of the book, uh, uses more of what's been called a shotgun approach uh, as compared to the rifle approach uh, that he has implemented for four and a half chapters. Uh, This is a commonly used illustration or analogy. It's not new to me. I will try and give it to you uh, in order to help you understand what, what I mean by these final instructions. If you're not familiar with guns like me, Uh, if you have to go to Wikipedia to understand the difference between a shotgun and a rifle, like me, uh, this is what you need to know, okay? By the way, right now, if you're feeling pride and judgment in your heart, (laughs) shame on you, all right? Okay, so here, here it is, ready? With a shotgun, I'm gonna use bad vocab here, improper terms, please don't correct me from the audience. With a shotgun, one trigger pull shoots many BB-like projectiles, if you will, I realize they're not called BBs, but in my mind, they're like little BBs. One trigger pull, lots of BBs. A rifle with one trigger pull, uh, you have one projectile, one bullet, usually intended to go uh, long distances. So a rifle is used uh, for precise long distance shooting, from what I understand. I'm gonna put all the caveats in here as possible so you don't judge me and email me later. So the rifle has this precise uh, a long distance, um, um, using long distance situations and the shotgun, from what I understand is better in short distances, uh, where you want to spray your ammunition around a little bit and better chances of hitting the target. And so again, many commentators have said, uh, have used this analogy even through the years. I found even some old commentators using, uh, like early 1900s using, uh, this analogy. And for four and a half uh, chapters, uh, Paul has been firing rifle shot after rifle shot, and he's been taking one idea and writing many verses about it and shooting long distance, if you will, uh, on that topic. Uh, but now, Paul, for half a chapter, he's going to fire a shotgun shell, and he's going to give one or two instructions about several significant topics, and he's going to really go quick. And so while we've been studying larger chunks of the book in our sermons because they're more like rifle shots, starting today, we're going to slow down and we're going to only study a few, a few verses at a time. And then we're going to take about a month to get through these, these final instructions because you see, here's the point. We're not the Thessalonians. Paul knew what they needed to have the rifle shot approach on and what they needed the, the, uh, the uh, what's that called? Shotgun approach with, Right. But the fact of the matter is you may have endured some really long sermons that are not very applicable to you. And one of these sentences in the final instructions might be very intriguing to you. And if we fly through it, uh, you won't be well served by it. Okay, so today we're entering into uh, the first few final instructions in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And, and the instructions are all about this. Don't miss this. The instructions in today's passage are all about ministry to the shepherding of, 
or in our culture, we might say the pastoring of the members of the gospel community. And so that's the topic. The shepherding of, the ministering to, what we might say the pastoring of the members of the gospel community. All right, with that said, let's stand. We'll, we'll pray together and we'll read scripture together. First, we'll pray aloud. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to hear your word and obey your will with joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Now listen to the reading of God's word upon which the sermon is based. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, it's all about ministering to, shepherding of, and, and if, you might, if you will, the pastoring of the church. I want us to see three things from the passage, okay? Three things. The call of the siblings to ministry. The equipping of the siblings for ministry. The patience of the siblings in ministry. All right? So first, the call of the siblings to ministry. Let me ask you a few questions, a series of questions. When you see or hear someone you know fairly well in your church body, whether it be this body or another body, when you see someone you know well uh, blatantly sinning or, or behaving in what you might call a rebellious way, do you tend to think uh, the elders or the staff or the community group leader should do something about that? Or do you tend to think, I, as a member of this community, should do something about that? When you see or hear someone you know well struggling to believe the promises of God and struggling to believe the goodness of God and the grace of God and the hard circumstances of life, do you tend to think, I need to email the pastors and I need to let them know what's going on in this person's life, that they're going through this trial. I'm gonna encourage the pastors to be near to these people during this time so that they can encourage them. Or do you tend to think, I as a member of this community need to be and get to be near to these friends in order to comfort them and in order to encourage them during this time. When someone in proximity to you and someone in community with you suffers a loss, maybe the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of health, let's say, do you think we need to get the leaders of the church around them a lot in the next few weeks so that they make it? Or do you think I need to get myself around them a lot in the next few weeks so that they can make it? When you're struggling to obey, when I'm struggling to obey, when you're discouraged, when I'm discouraged, when you're weak, when I'm weak, do we tend to think, I need a pastor to come help me? I need the elder to come help me? Or do we think, I need a brother or sister in the community of faith to come and help me? You see, I think you get the point. There's a tendency in the church to think this, admonishing, encouraging, and helping, especially in extraordinary situations. 
That work is to be done by the leaders, the elders, and the pastors. But Paul makes it incredibly clear in our passage. It's the siblings. It's the ordinary members of the community. It's the rank and file members who are called to do this ministry. Look again at verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters. So remember, anytime you read the word brothers in the translation we preach from most often at New City, it is best for you to hear in your mind brothers and sisters or maybe just siblings. If you look to the footnote in the English Standard Version, you're going to see that reality. And the reason for that is this. The word in Paul's day and age, this word in Paul's day and age could be used of a group of male and female siblings. It could be used for a group of male siblings. It could be even used for a group of female siblings. And so in that culture, when they heard what's rendered to you as brothers, they heard siblings. They heard brothers and sisters. And Paul writes, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And now it's clear in verses 12 and 13 that there are leaders and maybe even elders in Thessalonica. And while 12 and 13 make it clear that there are leaders or elders uh, in that church, it's still the siblings that Paul urges to do the ministry. While leaders and elders in the church are siblings, Paul in this passage will make a distinction between leaders and siblings And so from this context, we can see that even when there are leaders and elders in the church, it's not they that Paul calls to this ministry. It's to the siblings Paul calls this work of what our culture would call pastoring. So the first thing I want you to see with this point, we're going to put it on the screen now as a summary. The first thing I want you to see is this. Even when leaders are established in a church, It's the siblings who are called to minister to those going through extraordinary situations. And we urge you, siblings, admonish, encourage, help. Now, with that idea established, with you now understanding what your call is according to this passage, let's dig in and let's look at what each member is called to. Let's look at these three commands given by Paul to every one of us. So first, we'll put this on the screen. Paul commands us all to admonish the idle or correct the unruly. Now, now the idle is not a horrible translation here of the Greek, but it's not the best translation either. That's, again, why the more literal translations will use the word unruly uh, or insubordinate or undisciplined. That's why some translations, like your English Standard Version, will put in the footnote disorderly or undisciplined or insubordinate, depending on which version you have. It's telling you that as good a translation as idle is unrepentant. So if the Greek word means unruly or insubordinate or lacking repentance, why does the ESV use the word idle? Here's why. Listen, because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to this church, he uses the same word for unruly, and he uses it in direct connection to those people who are refusing to get jobs and those people who are mooching off of wealthy believers. And so in my opinion, the translators go too far and they use the word idle when they should have used unruly. But at the same time, the word simply means unruly. And that being stated, the idle in Thessalonica are a great example of what the unruly do. In other words, when you see someone in your life doing what they were doing, this is the one that we exhort and warn and correct and even rebuke. Listen to this. 
In chapter four, Paul tells the Thessalonians that the Lord himself taught the Thessalonians about the value and the importance of work. We don't know exactly what that means, but Paul's like, the Lord himself taught you about work. And Paul also writes in chapter four that he and Timothy and Silas had instructed them to, quote, live quietly, mind their own affairs, and work with their hands. And we still know that in 2 Thessalonians, there are those who are refusing to follow this teaching. Jesus has somehow showed up to them. The apostles have taught them, and they still didn't do what what Jesus wanted and what the teachers instructed. And, And Paul says, that's the kind of individual that I want the siblings to admonish, to correct, to warn, to rebuke. Now, now, of course, all of us, including me, are unruly or rebellious or unrepentant, unrepentant in some way. All of us have a gap between our understanding of what Jesus has taught us and what we're actually doing in our lives. But there are members of the church. There are times where members of the church are extraordinarily or especially rebellious. And in those times, Paul says it's the member's job, not necessarily the elder's job, to address the stubborn in those moments. Second, uh, Paul commands all the siblings, we'll put this on the screen, to encourage the faint-hearted or or to pour courage into those who are discouraged or those who doubt. So, So keep in mind that in Thessalonica, the believers there were experiencing intense persecution. Many were dying uh, as a result of this persecution, dying across several months. And as you may recall from previous sermons, Paul is very, very anxious. He's very concerned that these believers may abandon the faith, may walk away from Jesus because of the pain that's been introduced into their lives. And Paul is concerned because it is normal for Christians to become discouraged and it is normal for Christians to doubt God's power and God's goodness and God's grace and God's love when they suffer. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, and he says to us, encourage the faint-hearted. Pour courage into those who are discouraged. Pour courage into anyone who doubts. When anyone is doubting the promises of God, when anyone is doubting God's goodness, especially in hard times, come alongside them, encourage them, speak truth to them. Take them to their own story and remind them of all that God has done for them in the past. Take them to the scriptures and remind them all that God has done for his people in the past. Take them to the scriptures and remind them what God has promised to do for all of us who have faith in Christ in the future. And Paul said, when when people are discouraged, I want all the siblings to come alongside them and to pour courage into them. Of course the elders can do this work. But this is not exclusively exclusively the work of the elders. Now, of course, we all experience some level of discouragement and some level of doubt most of the time in our lives. But at the same time, some of us go through these seasons of intense spiritual discouragement, of intense doubt. And in those situations where where we might even be labeled, the primary label for us at that time is faint-hearted. Paul says they're still siblings, but right now they're faint-hearted. Encourage them. What do we tend to think when someone is openly doubting the promises of the gospel? We think as a rank-and-file member of this church, 
I am not qualified to deal with this unbelief. Or as a rank and file member of this church, I don't have to deal with this unbelief. Let's get the leaders and the elders and the community group leaders involved. Paul says, no, siblings, you can encourage the faint-hearted. So admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Third and finally, look at the screen. Help the weak. Literally carry the delicate. Now, it's hard to know exactly who we should understand as the weak. And the reason for that is because this term in the New Testament is used for the physically weak, the spiritually weak, and those that society would consider weak. That is, those who are disabled. And it seems to me that Paul is likely talking about the physically weak and the socially weak because he just spoke to the spiritually weak in the previous phrase. It also seems to me that Paul is talking about the physically weak in this instance because this word for help is a very physical word ordinarily in the Greek. It means this, grab a hold of, hold firmly, carry. It seems to me that it would be redundant of Paul to say, hey, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak as if he were saying that about the same group of people. I think Paul is saying, carry the delicate. In a day and age where most people had to walk everywhere, in a day and age where four friends would carry their friend on a mat to see Jesus, in a day and age where the physically weak and the disabled were absolutely and utterly despised by society, Paul says, in the church, we value, we love, we include. In the church, we go slower with, For the honor and privilege of going with any who are weak. We clutch them. We hold them close. We carry them. And so Paul says that this is not the work of the shepherding pastor on the staff of a big church. This is the work of the siblings who are called to ministry. All right. Let me transition to our second point by asking two questions. Maybe you have these in your mind, maybe you don't. The first question is this, if the ordinary siblings handle the extraordinary ministry, what are the leaders for? If the ordinary, and I I don't mean that negatively, I just mean the people most like a lot of other people. If the ordinary handle the extraordinary ministry, what are the leaders for? And second, what do I do if I'm ordinary and I don't feel qualified? If If I don't feel prepared? If I don't feel ready? to really minister to the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. All right, I want you to look for the answers to those questions as I reread 12 and 13. Look with me in your worship folder. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. By by the way, if you're wondering why I keep saying that in Thessalonica there were leaders for sure and maybe even elders, it's because these three phrases uh, are used of elders by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. And yet in this passage, he doesn't specifically call them elders. So some commentators are like, no, these are elders to be and they're emerging, but they're not elders yet. And some commentators are like, no, these are already elders. Paul used to send Timothy back to a church and ordain elders and Timothy was just there and blah, blah, blah. Okay, but either way, either elders or leaders, it doesn't matter. Paul's making this distinction between the siblings and the leaders. And start again in verse 12. 
We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Primarily, I think speaking of the siblings being at peace with the leaders. And our first point was the call of the siblings to ministry. And our second point is this, the equipping of the siblings for ministry. The equipping of the siblings for ministry. And while there's an awful lot that you can say from these verses, what is really clear is that Paul directly tells the siblings to minister to those in extraordinary situations, verse 14. And Paul alludes to the fact that the leaders are to work really hard. The leaders are to wear themselves out. The leaders are to toil among the siblings, verses 12 and 13. If you're familiar with the Bible or familiar with this concept of members ministering, you know that I'm borrowing biblical language from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. We'll put put this on the screen so you can at least see this key phrase. In Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus says to, or Paul says to those in Ephesus, he says to those of us in the church, he says, Jesus gives gifts to the church. And by that, he means apostles and prophets, uh, evangelists, elders, um, I'm sorry, pastors and teachers. And he says, Jesus gives gifts to the church, and this is what he gives them to the church to do. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Jesus gives leaders to the church not simply to do the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, it's not the coach who engages the other team in competition. It's the players who have been equipped by the coach who compete. It's not the officer who actually fights every battle in a war, but the soldiers who have been equipped by the officer for war. It's not the elders who do all the admonishing and the encouraging and the helping. It's the siblings who have been and who are being equipped who do that ministry. Do you see this? Let's answer our questions. What do leaders do if siblings are doing the extraordinary ministry? Well, Paul says, by insinuation, the leaders work really hard among the siblings and the leaders work really hard in the ordinary to prepare the siblings to minister in the extraordinary. That's just the basic flow of the passage. What do we do if we don't feel equipped? We respect, verse 12. We esteem highly in love, verse 13. We live at peace, verse 13, with the leaders of our church. If we're going going to minister to the unruly and the faint-hearted and the weak, we have to be leaning into the relationships we have with our leaders. If we're going to fulfill the call to ministry, we have to be equipped for ministry. If God has laid someone on your heart in one of those three categories I already described and you don't know what to do, ask your community group leader. If they don't know what to do, ask Rue. (laughs) If Rue doesn't know what to do, ask Damien. Joking. Just keep asking. Because the picture placed here is not that of just brothers and sisters with no leaders. There's clearly leaders in the New Testament church. But the picture painted here is not the leaders doing everything. It's the leaders pouring into the siblings and the siblings doing the extraordinary ministry. And this is what Paul is calling us to. 
Uh, if you look at verses 12 through 14 from 50,000 feet, and I, please understand what I'm saying here. If you look at it from 50,000 feet, it's clear that Paul, at any one point in time, Paul could categorize a church community into three groups. Think with me. They're all siblings. Don't get me wrong, but Paul can make distinctions between siblings and leaders and siblings and those going through extraordinary situations. And so each and every one of us is, has been, or will be in one of these extraordinary situations in our lives. And each and every one of us has, is, or can be part of the leadership of a church. But at any time you take a snapshot of a church, Paul sees three categories of people. Those who are ahead in the journey, those who are ordinary in the journey, and those who are lagging behind in the journey. And when we think about the church that way, especially in America, we tend to think those who are ahead in the journey should take care of those who are behind in the journey while the rest of us who are ordinary just kind of hang out with one another. Is this not how the American church is designed? So ordinarily the siblings, the members, they're just nickels and noses. We want the ordinary to show up whenever they're in town and to give even when they're not in town. Nickels and noses. But the staff and the really mature volunteers are gonna take care of the shepherding situations. They're gonna pass for the herding and they're gonna chase down the wayward sheep. And so it's like in the Christian journey in the American church, and I'm, again, I would include us in this to some degree and I would distinguish us from this in some degree, but in the American church, in the Christian journey, those who are ahead and those who are lagging behind get lots of time together. The people in the middle just keep walking until they unfortunately find themselves ahead or behind. But Paul in our, in our passage, and Paul in countless other passages, says that those who are further along in the journey labor hard among the siblings, and the siblings minister to those in extraordinary situations. Paul presumes that leaders minister through siblings to those in need of extra attention. Not that the leaders always minister directly to those in need of extra attention. And look at how brilliant Paul is in this passage. It took me until this morning to figure this out. In three verses, he addresses 80% of the body, but in, in addressing 80% of the body, he covers everyone. In verse 14, he tells 80%, lean in and invest in your relationships with the 10% who are lagging behind in the journey. But in verses 12 and 13, he tells the 80%, lean in and invest in those relationships with the 10% who are ahead of you and therefore over you in the journey. Do you know why paid elders, non-paid elders, and community group leaders burn out? Because the 80%, sometimes, not always, sometimes, they don't respect, they don't esteem highly in love, and they don't live at peace. They're suspicious, they're distrustful, they write the email about the 5% of the sermon instead of the 95% of the sermon. They create massive anxiety in the pastors, the elders, and the volunteer leaders. And then they say, would you please take care of all the people that need a lot of energy? Those who are unruly or weak or discouraged. 
Friends, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. Paul says there's another way. There is a way that can take over your city. Don't forget, this is the healthiest church in the New Testament. This is Paul's most fruitful three, years in ministry, or three weeks in ministry. He says there, there's a way for everyone to be yoked together in the church. And he addresses the 80% and tells us exactly how. So first, uh, the call of the siblings to ministry. Uh, second, the equipping of the siblings for ministry. And third, the patience of the siblings in ministry. So <clears throat> if you look at the end of verse 14, <laughs> you're gonna see that there's a phrase that we've pretty much ignored so far in this sermon. And that phrase is this, be patient with them all. So who's the all? I mean, with whom are the siblings supposed to be patient? Well, it's the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And so while Paul gives these three groups, while, while these three groups need a different ministry approach from the siblings, so the unruly need correction, not encouragement. Right? The weak need help, not admonishment. Right? So, so Paul says you gotta take a different approach with all three people, but what all of them are gonna need is this. Brothers and sisters ministering to them with patience. I really like the word used by some older translations here. They use the word long-suffering. The, the Greek is, I'll just use this because I think you'll figure it out. It's macrothumia. Macro, large or long. Thumia, passion or suffering. Large passion, long-suffering. That's what they need. If you've ever co-labored with, the lead, with a leader in a shepherding situation, or if you're a lead, leader and you've entered into a shepherding situation, that is someone in one of these three categories needing extraordinary help. You know that when you enter into those situations, you know by experience that in all of those situations, what you will need is the capacity to long suffer. And by the way, this is why the 80%, including me, are tempted to not lean into and relate deeply with those in front of them and those lagging behind them. Because we intuitively know that it will upset the apple cart that is our life. We know that we will soon need to be long-suffering if we're gonna be used by God to reduce the suffering in other people. I can't tell you how often a community group leader has co-labored in a shepherding situation with an elder at New City and eventually get to the place where they're tempted to promise themselves and everyone else around them that they will never do this again. It will take away our time. It will take away our comfort. It will take away our confidence. You want to lose confidence in your innate abilities? Try and help somebody. You want to become a person of prayer? Try and help somebody. It will take away our control. So let's say you're right now in the middle of ministering to one in an extraordinary situation. You, let's say you now desperately need patience. Let's say now you desperately need more long-suffering. How do you get that? Or, or let's say that you're avoiding the 10% ahead of you and, and, and because you know they're gonna engage you in the 10% behind you. Let's say that you're avoiding that like the plague because you don't wanna suffer long. 
how do we find the motivation to obey this passage? How do, we, how do we find the motivation to take part in this biblical design that could spark a revival in our city? How do we tap into the patience we will need to minister? This is where it's really important to remember that these final instructions are part of a larger letter that is part of a lot larger Bible where, where the letter and the Bible tell the story, the one story of God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's love. This is where it's super important to remember that although we've picked these, these verses out and talked about them for 30 minutes, within five minutes, the Thessalonians heard the entire book read to them, including the benediction, which screams at them that God is faithful and God is gracious and in Christ, he will do it. Here it is. The only way to be patient with those in need of intense ministry is to soak in God's eternal and extensive patience with us in our need and to soak in his ministry to us in Jesus Christ. The only way we can long suffer with others is to keep our minds and our hearts full of and feasting on the inestimable sufferings of Christ on the cross for us. Christ had the comforts of heaven and he took on the excruciating discomfort of the cross. He did that to minister to us. And as we see that and as we soak in that, we will become more willing to lose our comforts for other people. Christ had all the time of eternity in heaven, but he entered into time and he entered into history and he subjected himself to the timetable of evil men. And he did that to give us eternal life, to redeem us, to forgive us, to declare us righteous, to adopt us in, to, so that his father could adopt us into the family, to make us co-heirs with him of everything forever. And it is only in seeing that, it is only in soaking that in, it is only in believing that that we'll be willing to lose control of our time and lose control of our calendars to minister to other people. The Apostle Paul in his ministry exhibited, in my opinion, extraordinary and except for Jesus, unparalleled patience. If you just study the life of Paul, his patience and his ability to long suffer is mind-boggling. Do you know where the patience came from? In 1 Timothy 1, Paul tells us that the greatest and the largest and the foremost sinner of all times was himself. And that in the cross, the perfect patience of Christ was put on display in order to save him. You see, Paul in soaking in Christ's patience for him, is able to be patient with other people. What we're going to do is we're going to sing together about Christ's love for us. We're going to take communion together and we're going to experience his love for us and his love is going to indwell us. And the hope is that we leave this place empowered for patient ministry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for the incredible dignity that you have given to every one of your people, that each and every one of us can be used by you to do crucial ministry in the church and in the world. We thank you, Jesus, that your work for us on the cross was so full that we are now not only acceptable to God, but we're also able to be used by him in any way he sees fit. 
We thank you that, Holy Spirit, you live in us, and this is what makes us useful to one another. We thank you that those of us who are just siblings uh, in your church, we have you living inside of us just like uh, the most famous pastor and preacher in all the world. We thank you that you've forgiven us, that you've declared us righteous, that you've said we're very valuable to you and that you live in us to minister to the body and to the world. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand these things, that you would help us to live more in line with the Bible, uh, that where our context will push us towards unbiblical ways and thinking, that you would help us to turn towards the brilliance and the beauty of what you have said. We thank you that in all of this, there is more than enough grace for sinners like me and us. In the name of Jesus, we pray.